Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are, and Shalom, and welcome to the Western Wall. There's like a series of tunnels next to the Western Wall Plaza, and I'm in one, and I'm not here by myself. I'm here with Rabbi Mike Foyer. Rabbi Mike, shalom and welcome. Shalom, Yisha. I love the new pad. Yes, I've wanted to do a show here forever. And we're like, we are just steps away from the Western Wall. Not the holiest place for the Jewish people, but certainly close to it. The outer, uh, one, one of the four remaining walls uh, of the temple, which they are all extant. The outer. Of, of the supporting structure. Supporting of structure of the temple, correct. Um, the sandbox that so made the Temple Mount much b- bigger uh, uh, acreage area on top there. But we are, in any case, forget it. Don't worry about the small things right now. We're here in Jerusalem on the Land of Israel Network on the Yishai Fleischer Show. And Rabbi Mike Foyer, you may not know this, it happens to be my birthday. What? I didn't That's know. That's right. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, we're going to hear some blessings before the day is through. Well, I bless us to have a good show. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm not going to let you get away with that. Um, but uh, that's actually why I'm at the Kotel today. Ah, it's all coming clear to me yeah, now. Yeah, I was just like, I, 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 I dive in here, and then I met one other person. I met uh, a great guy named uh, Michael Block from McKenzie, uh, and uh, he took me out for some coffee, and we met, and then uh, you're, I'm meeting you, and then I'm meeting another. I'm actually meeting uh, somebody from the U.S. Embassy. Uh, to talk about the UNESCO problem that Chevron is having now. But not down here, because apparently this isn't in our country. Right, I didn't even ask. I didn't even <laughs> ask. I said, meet me at Mamilla. Um, by the way, speaking of Chevron, I want to do a shout-out to uh, our beloved Director General of the Chevron Jewish Community, Uri Karzen, and God a lover, lover of the show. And he sends his regards to you. Most kindly accepted, and you should have a holy Shabbos. Amen. And uh, right now, also, uh, Chevron is fighting uh, for its identity in, in global politics, since the good folks at UNESCO, who are in charge of trying to uh, protect heritage sites, are, have become uh, it, uh, the greatest enemies. A tool of identity theft. Right. A tool of identity theft. Certainly tools. There are a bunch of tools over there uh, of identity theft. And they are now set to, to uh, t- tell the world that Hebron is a city in danger and that Maratha Machpelah, the tomb of the father, fathers and mothers, is a Palestinian heritage site called the Ibrahimi Mosque, and we're basically, um, we're, we're, yeah, we're, we're in, we're <laughs> You're gearing up for battle. We're gearing up for battle, but like this, this thing of identity theft, it's, um, it, it's, it's bewildering, you know, when you're, you're, when you're your own identity and somebody's coming to, to th- steal away your identity and, and they're managing to somehow do it, you're just like, it's, it's bewildering. I, you know, I think this is one of the great struggles that Am Yisrael has fought down through time. I don't, we don't need to drag through 3,000 years of history, but it's not the first time in our history where another people came along and claimed to be us. And, and through an insufficiency of their own identity, actually had the need to claim our own. When are you referring to specifically? The, the biggest and perhaps first recorded case of identity theft in history was, of course, early Christianity declaring itself to be the new Israel. Right. Right. Uh, early Christianity, basically, that's replacement theology. Yes. And it's not even theology. It's also replacement tactics. I mean, it's a part of it is theology, and part of it is this, like... Well, then there's the practical expression, which is if, if you're the new Israel, then the old Israel certainly has to go. In the same and way that today... And if it hasn't today, gone, then the only reason it's around is to show how 
pathetic it is. Well, that was, you know, by the fourth century when we showed a staying power, which was unexpected, there had to be sort of a certain theological shift, as was true, by the way, in 1964 when the Catholic Church had to rework its theology to accept the fact that Am Yisrael was back in its land and was ex- existent and that the world wasn't going to work by trying to wipe us out anymore. Right. And we're kind of waiting for that sea shift on the part of the Arab world, you know, to say to accept the fact that we exist right. and that we've come back to our land. And then we'll work out. But, how to you know make a new mode of living? But, but until what we it see happens, is the opposite. We see a doubling down right now, uh, with the help of uh, the old folks out there in Europe uh, who have practiced at this. That's kind of what I meant when I said that this is an old story. Right. right? It's, it's deep, I think, in the sort of cultural DNA of Europe to need to deny the existence of the Jews as as an entity and certainly as a nation. The, what is like? Sometimes you're just like Europe. Get over yourself. Like like. Like, modernize, like, welcome, hello. I don't think you appreciate the depth of the struggle of what it is to change your identity. Remember, European identity, as much as they don't like to tell a story as such, right, came into existence together with the Jews, right? Christianity was born in its struggle with the Jews, and therefore, for us to maintain our integrity over the long run really forces them to reevaluate who they are. And most people are not willing to do that. Faced with but, the they, but they are reevaluating in the sense that they've lost their religion. These are not religious people anymore. They've lost the sense of nationality. They've lost a sense of family. You would think that, in a, that one thing they would also give up in all this is their deep anti-Semitism, right? You would think that they'd be like, why would we care about this anymore since we don't care about anything else? Yet they've managed to... like. Get rid of their own French German identity and all that. They've they've they're they're not in their churches. You would think they would drop anti-Semitism. No, the one thing that they have held on to strong is this. Yeah, I bless you someday to have teenage children, to be healthy and well, and <laughs> oh, you'll man. understand that actually the simplest, most powerful, and most profound element of identity is not the positive element. That's in the long run. That's maturity. That's acquiring a sense of who I am. But who I'm not is a deeply visceral. And foundational move. And I think that what you're identifying is that much of Europe has lost its sense of positive identity, and yet they have not given up on the sense of who they are not. There's a rejectionist stance. We see it here. You know, I mean, really, like, I don't necessarily want to slide into it right now, but if you, you just see recently someone published a, a book of Palestinian history that was mostly empty, empty pages. Yes. Right? I mean, it's a, it's a joke, but it's not. Right? Because, because the essence of, of specifically Palestinian national identity was born out of the rejection of the return to our land. So, so what do you have if you reject? Nothing. And that's a scary prospect for right. people. And, and, but, but you know, the way you said it, that it was born out of it, I would say it's, it, you know, and, and it's not even born out of a struggle. It was actually just a tactic of the struggle. Yes. And, and, that, that, and then it, it and that's, metamorphosed. I got to tell, tell you, recently, um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs released a video in which he was like, BDS is really anti-Semitism. Right, and he says it with that accent, too. Right, and, but, but then he's like, Although I believe in a right of a Palestinians to have their own state, BDS is anti-Semitism. And I'm like, you just, you said, this is Trafe, but the big one, you made kosher. The big fa- BDS is nothing but a newer tactical of the bigger tactic against Israel, which is Palestine-Palestinianism. And you, you, just, you just did what Saul did. You, you got rid of some of the Amalekites, but Agag, you left alive. Yeah. You didn't slay the big one. Okay, the big one, you, not only did you not slay him, you actually like, gave him nice food and, said, and you, you actually cautioned it. You, a rabbi, have no right to, co- in my opinion, you have no, I mean, right or no, forget the right language. You should not kosher the, the big tool against us. Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're deep into politics, so why not go all the way? Listen, I have, I have no problem with Palestinians have a state. I just 
don't want them to take ours. Meaning, meaning, if you want to say that a people has a right to a state, we can have a theoretical discussion about what that means. Have a right to a state, but they don't mean but that. I know they not, don't mean that. People, and that's uh, my they're not, problem. They're not a people without their conflict, like you just said. They want, they want, they don't want a state. That's all a joke. They want this land. They want to get rid of us. I understand that, which is why I feel like falling into that trap is a, is a deep mistake. We need to really get to the core of this, which is that okay, who are you? Don't tell me what you want. Don't tell me about your rights. Tell me who you are. And therefore, what you're going to be in the world. I mean, right now, I can't imagine what it would be to empower the elements of Palestinian society that are truly striving for nationalism. Okay, maybe here and there, there are some sparks of, of a sort of a, a more enlightened em- embracing of, of the world as a whole, right? But, but by and large, you're talking about empowering the most vicious elements of the society around us and giving them territorial and military integrity. It's like, it's like a bad joke. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? Uh there was once a South Park about Mormonism, and it kept on being like dum 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 dum. It's like it's like there are so many dums at this at this st- at this inter uh, what is this called this crossroads. Okay, it's like it's not smart militarily and smart smart in our identity, in uh, so many other ways. It's so easily to it's so easy to prove what we're facing, and yet I got to tell you, I I face these uh, young liberal Jewish groups. And it's as though I got there too late. You know, I can make a segue out of this right to our Parsha and watch me do it. I was going to do that also. All right, I get the first shot. Go ahead. Right? This is one of those important rules of understanding human behavior, which is face with the impossible and the unacceptable, people will always choose the impossible. Because the impossible, well, you know, it could work, it could work, it could work. Don't be a naysayer, don't be so, et cetera. But the unacceptable means I have to completely reevaluate the way I understand the world. So here in this sense is that there is sort of like a, a belief in this sort of economic and cultural feasibility of if all people are the same and peace and jihad is just misunderstood and all these things. And that's ridiculous. But to reevaluate that for the world means to completely reevaluate the understand human behavior. Okay, but tie right. it into the partial. So in the same way, Korach, when he starts his rebellion, I mean, at what point did he think that 10 plagues, the splitting of the Red Sea, standing at Sinai, weren't indicative that God was actually in charge? Right. But, but he didn't want to accept that because that meant he wasn't going to get what he wanted personally. So therefore, he decided to just push the impossible. No, 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 really, it's actually all Moshe. It's really all Moshe, but really, what was it? It was all him. In the same way, I suspect that's a lot of what's driving the, the forces against us as well. Ideology aside, there's a huge amount of personal status and energy invested in the idea of the two-state solution. Right, absolutely. And when you go to visit offices like uh, the foreign ministry or something, you see that there's a lot of clerks and, and, uh, and uh, bu- bureaucrats that are there and they have their opinion. You're not going to get them out and they have a lot invested or professors. If you go to the universities, there's definitely that as well. I was actually going to take a different tack uh, uh, to tie it into the Torah portion. And we are talking about the Torah portion of Korach. It's in the book of uh, Numbers in the desert, the fourth book of the uh, Pentateuch. Um, and you said that so well. Yeah. And, and uh, it's, 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 as you alluded, it's, it's a rebellion against Moses. This is one of the more political Torah portions, as was the last one. And we were talking about identity theft. The accusation against Moses is that he uh, is um, wielding power over people and suppressing them in order to hoard power to himself instead of sharing it with the people. Yet the Torah told us only two Torah portions ago, this is the most humble man on the face of the earth, one who, when he hears uh, another prophet say, you're going to die and not going to the land of Israel, he says, 
I wish everybody was a prophet. That would be great. I'm not trying to. And, and God says, how about you share some of your prophetic energy with the 70 other elders? He's like, let's do it. And he's in no way trying to hoard power to himself. And here comes this, this uh, accusation, which, which uh, is, is very much like an accusation that says, Hebron, that's not Jewish. It's like, wait a minute. What do you mean? That's the, that's that's absurd. It's you the don't very get more Jewish, right? Than that. It's the most Jewish. This this is the heart of beating heart of Judaism, the cradle of us of our civilization, and yet the accusation is exactly the opposite. So it's like it's like a whole olam It's an upside down world. The upside down world is this guy comes up to Moses, and you know it's very powerful. Hey, you're Mr. Big Tzadikai. The truth is, let me expose you. You're actually. Hoarding power. You're Mr. Magician Man. You got it all. You know, all the people are holy. Well, yeah, the scale and absurdity of an accusation actually gives it weight. Meaning, you know, the willingness to stand up to Moshe himself. Everybody else knows they split the Red Sea. You know, it, it, it means, oh, people say, wow, he, Korach wouldn't have said that if, if it weren't true. And I think actually the most important and the deepest part of this story is in the truth of what Korach says. Right? And as our sages teach us, that there is no such thing as a lie that exists in the world without some grain of truth. Right? And so here, what Karach says is, right? He says, right? The whole, the whole community, the whole people is holy and God is amongst them. So at that point, everybody's nodding and saying, is Moshe going to argue with that? You know, at the same time, there's two pieces here. One is it is... Um, just a blatant lie in the sense that that's not his goal. He's looking for his self-elevation. Right. As P.G. O'Rourke says, power to the people means power to me and some of my friends. Right. Okay? <laughs> for so, sure. So that, you, know, the, you get the sense, this, this guy's not real. He's, it's tactical what he's saying. Well, not only that, you also get the sense it's that actually even the if opposite. it's real. It's about me. Look what's happened to the people in the last you know, several chapters. They're not ready to pick up that burden. At this point, it's going to take 40 more years before they're even ready to go into the land. Right. So, so the, the premature assertion that we're all holy, we don't need you, I, I find it very similar to a lot of the sort of very idealistic and misguided language that I see out in the world today about how, like, you know, we don't need governments, we don't need borders, right. we don't need... I mean, yes, please God, let Mashiach come, and, and there will be an evolution of consciousness, and, and we will all truly get along, and, you know, the whole world will stream to Harabayit to praise the Lord. But... In the meantime, back here on planet, we know what's planet going reality, on. Planet reality, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I, I'm not really willing to bear my throat in order to prove to you that we're not there yet, right? And that's why Moshe takes. But that comes a lot of times. What you just described comes from a naivete, a youth, a kind of uh, un- unfamiliarity with realpolitik, with the life. Uh, Korach is not that. Nobody uses it. Right, he sweeps right. quite a number of people behind him. Right. But, but it's very much because he is a very worldly person. He's, by the way, interestingly enough, considered one of the richest men or the richest man. He was very, very, very wealthy. He had power. Yes. He had power. And wisdom. Says that when, what did he think he was going to actually accomplish here, right? And the Gemara says, Koch right? Right. Well, he, was a, he was a sharp-eyed guy. What did he see in this foolishness? He even saw the future saw, in fact, that he was going to have a very famous descendant who in many ways would, would redeem his approach. You, of course, know who his famous descendant was, yes? Right? Samuel the prophet. At the same time, to, to, to look a thousand years ahead. Well, Samuel the prophet is, I, I, I don't does he redeem his approach or does he redeem Moses' approach? Meaning to say... Well, I mean, do we want to go there right now? I think in many ways he actually does redeem the Korach's approach because it's the end of the priesthood. 
it's not for naught that 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 uh, Shmuel is the one who actually announces the end of the rule of the priesthood over Am Yisrael. Mm-hmm. Right? Elia Cohen, or Elia the priest, right. right, is really the last priest until Ezra that that claims leadership, and Ezra studiously avoids claiming it as priest. He does it as as scribe, you know, in the in the in the word of the Lord. And there's a lot. You can pull out, particularly, there's a lot of what's called intertextuality, a lot of textual parallels and interplay between the story of Koch and the story of, of Shmuel. But, but most importantly, from my point, is that, that it was in many ways Koch's wealth and wisdom that misled him. Because in opposition to Moshe, what he lacked was humility. Right. And, and there are claims, the, the absurdity of the claim, you, Moses, are, are trying to abuse power. And then later, another claim... And and notice the, the the relationship here. Last Torah portion, we 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 learned that uh, it is, the land of Israel is a land of milk and honey, but we won't be able to attain it. The slip in philosophy is now, hey Moses, you took us out of a land of milk and honey. We you took us like back then two parcels ago. We're like, oh, we missed those leeks and watermelons and onions that we were served in Egypt. Then it's like, well, land of Israel is a good land, but it's hard to get there. And then it's like, wait a minute, you took us out of a good land. You took us out of a land of milk and honey. You see what happens? That's a kind of ideological uh, um, equivocation. In- inversion. Uh, inversion. And it, 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 it slips. It slides. By the way, I notice this a lot of times that people, I say that, I've said this a few times, people really change their philosophies around their realities. Oh, yes. And, it's very and, hard and, not to. Right. And a, a philosophy is actually a kind of program that you run in order to explain, understand, and run the life that you lead. Yes. You know, and so, but... but Very so mo- few people live otherwise. Right. The other way of doing it is having a philosophy and le- living a life according to that. Here it's more like, let me justify and license, give license to my lifestyle. By the way, I think that this is a psych- psychological understanding of the, the teaching of our sages, that avir de'et Yisrael machkim. Right, that the air of Eretz Israel makes you wise. I mean, how many people have very good reasons and, and, and not justifications, but honest analyses of why it's impossible to make Aliyah? Right? Why, why we're not, I can't make it there culturally, linguistically, financially, what have you. Real. I'm not talking about sure. people making excuses. And yet they, they, they adopt a philosophy that says, so nevertheless, I'm going for it. Going for it because God said so. I'm going for it because that's where history is at. I'm going for it for whatever reason. And then they get here and suddenly things look very different. You travel a lot. I'm sure you've had that experience. It's it's like going through the looking glass. You're here and you see the world through the lens of Eretz Israel. And then you go, forget reading the media, forget you know, just simply the physical experience of getting outside of Israel and looking at the world and saying, oh, I get it. It looks very different from out here. It's interesting because there's uh, exactly what there were two little stories that I wanted to tell you that happened to me this week uh, that related exactly to what you just said, this looking glass. First was that this week was the yard site of Rav Mordechai Eliyahu, and I was not far from the cemetery, and I said, I, I want to go. And I went to the cemetery, and before I went to Rav Mordechai Eliyahu, I went to visit my dad, who's buried uh, pretty close by. So I went to visit my dad, and then there's another tzaddik, uh, Rav, Rav Zilber, who's buried there, a famous kind of Russian tzaddik. And... Uh, and, and there were, like, other Russian Jews there. And then this Russian Jew said t- to people around him, I need to make, um, to say, Kaddish. So can you join me? That happens a lot in the cemetery. People are like, they need a tenth. They need a few more people for, for ten men for a quorum. So the guy says to me, uh, where do you live? Uh, he goes, do you live in America? Because he heard me speaking in, in English, and I had my New York Yankees hat. <laughs> 
So I said, no, God forbid, I live in Yerushalayim. He says, why do you say God forbid? I mean, a Jew can keep Torah anywhere. And I'm like, I'm like, well, there's an ingathering of the exiles right now. And the guy, older Jew, older Jew says to me, you know, an older Russian Jew came out of one of these, you know, Kazakhstan places. Uh, he says to me, what are you talking about? There is no ingathering of the exiles. He's like, and, kibbutz, and he said to me, Russian, there's no kibbutz galiot right now. There's no ingathering of the exiles. I'm like, I'm like, I, at first I thought he was might have been joking with me. So I'm like, are you, are you joking? He's like, he's like, he kind of turned it back to me. He's like, and then he turned to a few other ultra orthodox people who were there. He's like, is there an gathering of the exiles now, or is that like a different time, messianic times, and sometime in the future? I'm like, I just pointed to Yerushalayim. I'm like, look. I said to him, I'm a simple Jew. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, so I'll just look at Yerushalayim. And he just looked at me, and I looked at him, and it was just like, I was just like, oh my god. It's like, you know. <laughs> It's uh, what's what's the reality out there? Yeah. That's story number one. Story number two is that I'm giving a talk to a British group, and I make the claim that Palestinianism is really uh, a tactic of the jihad, secular jihad and religious jihad to try to oust Israel. And she goes, "This girl raises her hand. She's like, you say that Palestinianism." Has has is really rooted in jihad. I've never heard that. She says to me, like I've I've never I've never heard that. Can you can you please explain it? Later on, she turned out to be quite 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 liberal. But it was just like I was just I looked at her at first. I'm like, you mean you haven't heard this stuff? You haven't been to their Facebook page? You haven't heard that that, that at least I mean you've heard that some. She was like, no, it's like a liberation movement. And again, I was just like awestruck by the looking glassness of like. Reality perceived. I thought, you know, okay, most people would be like, well, yeah, there's a little bit I of I heard that. this, I heard that. Right. Well, in the gathering of the exiles, I mean, okay, I mean, it's not maybe the end of the other, but, but there, there are some. six billion Jews from all over the right, world that have the, come here in the last 70 years. But again, it's like, it's like the philosophy. <laughs> there's, there's, there, there's a far, uh, uh, what do you call it? A, a cavern, a uh, chasm, a chasm, chasm yeah. right. Between, between, at least the way, I, and, and you know, it scared me because I was just like, oh, another thing this girl said to me is I said to her, listen, I think you've been mistaught about what Palestinianism is and what the rights of the Jews are. She goes, by saying that, you're delegitimizing me. Uh-huh. I'm like, I'm like by, by, by saying that I'm delegitimizing you, you're actually delegitimizing me. Oh, because I'm not a, I, I don't know. <laughs> she was like, I'm like, I'm actually not trying to delegitimize you. <laughs> I would never, and by, by you saying that about me, it's, takes away my position as though we're not having conversation anymore yeah it's precisely what it was doing and right. I think it is a, a major intellectual tactic today that instead of coming to sort of to battle on the on the field of ideas like you and i were raised right like well man say it like it is I mean, you might have to be decent and nice you don't want to be you know like sort of ad hominem personal attacks but but let's duke it out so no today the 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 virtue is placed on on safety and and acceptance of other as the primary and therefore what it does is anybody who asserts something against you has become an aggressor right it's it's a it's a major problem that we're dealing with uh listen there's a there's a piece in Korach. i feel like it's connected to this looking glass phenomenon right you know the moshe again he's seeing the world through the lens of god right there's this wonderful line later in in the book of deuteronomy we should make it there please god right where where it describes moshe as uh right which you would translate as how how would you translate that um, he sees the image. He looks directly to the image of God. Right, which is deeply problematic, isn't it? Since Moshe is the one that will tell us, no, no, no images, please, no images. Right, uh, but that, but that's exactly it. Meaning to say, there's no images that you can engrave, 
but there is an image of God somehow, and, and he sees it. In any case, in, in our terms and languages, he's speaking to me face to face. So I've been taught. Whatever, whatever God's face means. By the way, God calls, says, he blesses us with his face. Yeah, for sure. And we'll get, uh, we, uh, we passed it. We went, we passed it. We passed it. Yeah, we passed it. it. Ah. Yeah. Uh, but, but my point was, is that there's another way to read it, which is that he sees the world through God's eyes, meaning right? he's seeing the vision from the, from the godly perspective, right? And so it's a great example. Tchelet, right? The, the mitzvah of putting a blue string on the, uh, the four-cornered garment. Um, the, the Korach famously in the rabbinic literature comes to Moshe and says, you're telling me all these mitzvot are so important? Here's a, here's a talit kulo tchelet, right? Here's a, here's a, uh, a, a Clothing, a piece of help a me out there. Cloth. A piece of cloth, cloth, but but uh, a piece of clothing, uh, a garment, a garment. That's the word, right? right? It's, it's all made of tehillah. Do I have to hang a blue string on it? Moshe says, well, "Of course you do." Like what? That's the law. And Karach gets everybody to laugh at him. Like ah, like the whole thing's made of tehillah, and, and it's not good enough. And now he's telling me you got to put like the one string on it. And ah, right. <laughs> right. I mean, why? Because Karach is is trying to pull out from it this. No, we. This is a comprehensible human endeavor, and right. we understand Moshe's agenda. And said so Moshe's looking from the perspective of God, which says, "No, I told you to do this. If you live this way, maybe you'll come to understand what it is. But don't expect to have to understand it in order to live this way." But those are completely inverted ways of seeing the world. By the way, I just want you to know that people like my mom, when they read Parshat Korach, they're like, "He's a communist." <laughs> Im- immediately, like they're like they're like well, they like everybody's holy, everybody's the same. Well, yeah, it, the, the, his whole argument is like power to the people, and 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 you know, you you leaders, you know, you you're the you're you're, you're the, the the power holders, you're the evil people in this world. And for my for people like my mom, who come out of the Soviet Union, it's like. They they really see Korach as this Jew that they know, mm. this Trotskyite that they are very. They're well, like they spot him right in this text. Uh, that's a frightening thought. Yeah, that's that's how they that's how the way they see it. Okay, um, so you said something before that I wanted to riff off of, which is you said that Moses split the sea. Right. It made me think that in this week's Torah portion we see another split, and and another creation, another unusual thing. And that is the way that Korach and his family go down. Is is Moses said, if I'm not if I'm if I'm not serving God, then you're you know, if I'm serving if I am a true messenger of God, then the way you're going to die is through a creation that has never been before, and the earth is going to open up. It's there's going to be an earthquake the way we understand it, but there's going to be a crack in the earth, and it will swallow, it will swallow them the the Korachites. And the, and the whole rebellion, it'll swallow them whole. Is that maybe an allusion to the, those who didn't believe in God's splitting of the sea? Meaning to say there's like, a, there's like a new kind of split, and this one is instead of saving you, it's swallowing you up. Like what is the, there's this whole like, there's imagery here of like the earth itself eating them, swallowing them. And then we of course also hear later in the Talmud that you could still hear them like singing songs, for God from below the earth. Well, right, because what I find so powerful is it's the, the text actually says that they went alive down to... Right, right. they went to, down... To Sheola, right? And there's no real word for hell in, in the Bible, but there are a few words that get worked into that much later concept. But they went alive down into the deeps. Why alive? Because I think what this is pulling out, at least in a, in a metaphorical sense, is the fact that, truth is, these people were already in hell. They were already living in a godless, empty world. As soon as Korach decided that what was most important was power 
and that he was willing to defy even Moshe and therefore even God in order to get it, then the earth opening itself up and swallowing him down alive into this dark place was just an expression of the world in which he already lived. In the same way, and I think that there's a right parallel here to the splitting of the Red Sea, right? who splits the Red Sea? It's Nachshon ben Aminadav, right? He's, he, but he goes all the way in, says the Midrash, to the point where the water reached his nostrils. Why? Because he thought at the last minute God would save him? No, because he was already living in a godly world, and he knew that the world would respond. Because the world creation is a responsive creation. Creation is not some sort of like static phenomenon where, well, things happen and everything's a coincidence. And so, no, the world, nor is it, I believe, like God is like some puppet master that's constantly, you know, like uh, pulling strings and making sure things. No, no. God created a world in which is when we approach him through the world, so he approaches us. Nachshon moves into the sea, and God says, well, there you go. I'm going to split it. Korach defies God, and he says, wow, you're, you're already living in hell. I'll show you that it's true. And the earth opens itself up and swallows him. Right? And it, it is a source of tremendous hope in, in my mind, but it's also one of great fear in terms of, um, you know, the world could go many ways. And similarly, they, the spies sent a bad message about the land of Israel, that it's a land that eats its inhabitants. Rabbi Nachman says... That's actually a good midah. That's actually a, a, a good thing. It eats its inhabitants. It swallows them. It, it ingests them. So it, it makes you part of the land of Israel. You become really, really, um, what's the word? Uh, infused. In, infused. In, in, integrated, infused into the, 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 the holiness of this land. And when it doesn't swallow you up, it spits you it out. It spits you out. Oh, that's very strong. Yeah, he says. He, yeah, that. he says it spits you out. He says the opposite. The land of Israel is a land that 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 will take you in and make you part of it. Right. You know, and I also heard a beautiful thought on that. In that, Ochelat at where the land eats those who sit. Right. This is a place, as uh, you well know. You, you got to be moving, man. We're right. moving forward. There's that's no right. standing still here. That's right. That's right. Or or the people say Atzat Hashem hi takum. The the uh, the uh, advice of God is it will arise, but another way to read that is the advice of God is get, get up. up. Okay, so that that's another thing. All right, um, uh, th- this week's Torah portion. Many years ago, I read it also in Amsterdam. Why do I remember that? Why do I remember that? I I was in Amsterdam, and um, Amsterdam, a beautiful city, a very special city, uh, is also famous in part for its flowers. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, there were very beautiful colors there. There was a lot of gray because of the because of the rains there. But also, the sun would come in, and I and I went to the. There's a whole flower market. It's like a big thing there. And and exactly that uh, that Shabbat, I read about how God was trying to prove who the leader of the Jewish people was by saying to the heads of the tribes, "Hey, hand in your um, staffs staffs to to the." To the Aron Kodesh, to to the inner sanctum, uh, and put it in front of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and God will show you who the leader is. And at the end, what happens is the next morning they come in, and the the staff of Levi, staff of Aaron, flowers with the beautiful, famous flower of the land of Israel, which is the Shkidiyah, the almond flower, and it actually yields a fruit. And that was supposed to be a sign. Everybody was very, very desperate after seeing both Korach go down into the ground and then 250 of his, of his followers with the fire pans get killed through the, throwing down, the coming down of a fire that burnt them all up 
totally. And so the Jewish people were like, oh, my God, there's like a death thing going on here. We're like in a desert. And now like, you know, people fires. People getting burned up. They're getting yeah. swallowed by the earth. It's like this This ain't good. The spies had that nasty end we didn't talk about last week. Right, which is like the, the their tongues came out. And, and they, they got filled with worms, went deck down in their stomachs. It's like really, yeah, bad news. Bad news. Uh, so people were getting a little bit upset about that. By the way, we're, if you hear background noise, we are at the Western Wall right now in one of the little tunnels. I hear people singing Am Yisrael Chai. There's, today's Thursday. There are bar mitzvahs here, bat mitzvahs. I saw a guy loaded down with tear gas canisters and a helmet putting on tefillin about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> it's like a, it's an image you just don't another, get anywhere else. Another thing that they have here today is that a lot of people who are like looking for jobs have, have become these people in white. They put on these white turbans, white shirts, white pants, uh, white shoes, and they have shofarot, and what they do is is that they go together with bar and bat mitzvahs, and they like play the drums and blow the shofar and, and become awesome. these like these like shofar uh, cheerleaders. Yeah, bar mitzvah cheerleaders. That's yeah. what they are. Yeah. <laughs> they're, yeah. <laughs> they're the entourage. Yeah, rent an entourage. It's really fun. Uh, so, so I was just saying that there's this like flower thing, which is God's like, no, the, the flower symbolizes like there is peace. Yes, he's the leader, but also there's I don't know. What do you think this this like beautiful flower like a like an old staff that is certainly a dead tree comes to life two things it says to me first of all and it's so important to remember that the primary focus of the torah is choose life we are people who are about life and life is not found through some sort of narrow-sighted pursuit of power life is with god and God says, I'm going to prove it to you. See this stick? It's been dead. I mean, it's not been de- just been dead. It's You've been using it as a staff. You've been walking in the desert for 40 years with this stick. Is there life in it? And the answer is, only you know, God. And Aaron is the one who really encapsulates that. The other thing you brought up for me, which I actually have never thought about before, is at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, when God, in what is one of the most revealing passages about what prophecy really is, says to Jeremiah, what do you see? You remember what the first thing he sees is? Makel Shakid. Right? It's, it's, an, it's a staff of an almond tree. And there, God says, you know, it's seen good, right? Because anishakadati, right? I'm, I'm, I'm always on the watch. I'm sort of waiting and intensely focused in order, in that case, Lo'aleinu, to bring evil on Am Yisrael. But I, I believe that the shakad, you know, it's the first to flower, right? And with that, that wonderful Zionist children's song that I love, Ashkiri Aporachet, right? I love to sing it every year in, in, in the spring over and over until my wife goes nuts. Um, the kids won't stop. So, but but it's, it teaches us, like I said, is that the God is not some like far off, distant, um, you know, God of the philosophers who started some process going, and and if you know the rules, you can just play it out to your advantage, like Korach thought. It's right here. It's right here, right? And and that's what brings real life. So like God says, I'm I'm so present that I can take something dead and make it fruit and flower. But but you have to know that and Aaron is the one who does the daily work to in the in the Mishkan and the tabernacle and between people and bringing them back together in intimacy to show that God is always present. It's not sort of like some distant waiting figure. It's right here. And that, so that's the nice version of the, of the flowering staff. Um, th- there's a different version that the Balaturim talks about that actually the staff did what it did back in Egypt, which it, sw- it swallowed. Remember it swallowed the staffs right. that turned to snakes of the Egyptians? He says it swallowed the other staffs here also. Whoa. And, then, and then when they got there, they opened it up and there was only one staff and people were like, hey, is there some hanky panky? And then it started coughing them up. It <laughs> coughed up the other staffs. It goes, here you go. <laughs> and oh. it like threw them back out. And it's like, okay. So there, oh, was, there, was, there was a power thing. Um, finally, I want to do just one more story here. And that is um, that uh, more Jews are complaining 
and uh, the people start talking bad um, against is against against Aaron against Moses. Um, the complaining is something that that the that God really doesn't like, and this is something that was pointed out to me by Rav Arush, who really just shows you that the one of the main things that God doesn't like is complaining. Remember that, folks. That's like one of the worst kind of things you could do. So instead of thanking God for your life, and that's what Rav Arush teaches, thank God for everything, and don't complain about it, and thank Him for the problems as well. Just a practical thing. My wife and I do this periodically. If you can challenge yourselves to a week of not complaining to each other, right. you will find that your relationship shifts in a very, I don't mean complaining about each other God forbid I mean actually complaining to each other mm-hmm. about other things mm-hmm. it, it can shift the nature of your communication in a major way well it's interesting you say that because because today the 28th of uh, Sivan is also the first day of the tri- of the spies going into the land of Israel for 40 days until uh-huh. Tisha B'Av this is a great time to fix the sin of, of evil speech bad speech slanderous speech it's true and in this case also complaining speech and I believe in I've I've wanted to run this for a few years now, which is forty days of speaking good about Israel, and in general, forty days of like speaking good. I'm going to take yeah. that on. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. exactly it at this time. Today. Until Tisha B'av. Your birthday. Yes, my, my birthday is the day Lest when the spies get in. That's right. So uh, in you any are case, a for that, my friend. That's I'm trying, and so I'm trying to do my part. In any case, You're doing it, and then and then they they complain. The the Jews are complaining. Uh oh, God's like um, that, that. This time, God's not even talking anymore. Now He's actually starting to. You know, he said in the in the past, you know, just just let me at him, just let me at our Jews. And Moses is like, no, 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 hold me back, no, 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 don't hurt the Jews. It's gonna be bad for your name. Yeah, this in this case, straight out. This case, there's there's like a the, a fiery plague starts to hit the Jews. Moses says to Aaron, listen, take this uh, incense pan, incense pan, and and walk quickly to to the Jews for the plague has begun. Aaron takes and 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 do atonement for them. Aaron takes the, play, the, the incest pan, runs, doesn't walk quickly, runs and stands right in front of the plague, which, which plagues, the Torah tells us, our rabbis tell us that once the plague goes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take right. the good once guys along with it. Let loose, yeah. Right. And Aaron, so selflessly, so selflessly, so unafraid you know, for, for himself, stands right there in front of the Jewish people who have sinned. Yeah, you know, God, you know, I'm going to against tell, him personally. I'm going to tell God what to do. Me, right. I'm going to tell. I'm going to tell God to stop right here. Yeah, I'm going to tell him to stop killing Jews right now. And against him personally, it's the exact right. opposite of Korah. My God. Well, but My you God. see why he was chosen. Exactly. It's like it's like this is this is this is this is Aaron's moment, and he stands between the living and the dead, atones for them, and the plague stops. What a what a, I mean that that to me is like where art should be. Like, I would like to see that depicted, you know? Mm. I, I'd like to see that. Like, Aaron standing the right the between the living and the dead with his, with his like, and, and looking up to God and calling, asking for expiation, for, for penitence, for, for, for tshuva. And at the risk of his own life. Amazing. That, that to me is like a, a, like a, that's an art moment, you know what I mean? It's also an ideal of leadership. I think of, yeah. um, you know, we're sitting here at the Kotel and it's just incredible merit to be here and I think of some of the early leadership in particular that this country mattered to people you know um, like like uh, Ben Gurion who, who really I mean died a poor man uh, you know and, and, and stood between life and death in terms of coming out of the Holocaust and, and the birth of the state of Israel and I believe that this, the divine success that they merited was because it was not about them yeah there's there's basically no more powerful force in this world than Mesirut Nefesh. True. That, that's the one you mentioned also, of course, uh, Nachshon Ben Aminadav, but Mesirut Nefesh, which is self-sacrifice, 
for the greater cause, it's um, it's the highest. It's the highest thing. It changes the world. It changes the world. That's what changes the world. Rabbi Mike Foyer, I want to uh, thank you very much for joining me on my birthday here at the Western Wall. And um, I'm sorry, I would have brought a cake if I'd known. That's all right. It's also the day of the beginning of the spies' journey in the land. It's also actually the uh, anniversary of um, um, last night was actually Leil El Qadr, which is a big Muslim holiday, which is the the holiday of power when uh, you know. Dr. M came up with, uh, uh, with with this Quran. Not you know, this not, but this is part of what's going on here atmospherically. It's also the day that uh, the Entebbe plane was taken ah. um, uh, so many forty-one years ago, uh, I, and I was born on that date. So then you can guess how old I am. Um, Wait, don't yeah. tell me. <laughs> so it's definitely a, a, a powerful date. I want to thank you, and I also want to bless you. Uh, for continued success, strength, continued great broadcasting, and I mean that in the broadest sense of the word broadcasting, uh, of God's truth. He's re- relying on us to be his broadcasters and relying on you, and I want to wish you a lot of hatzlacha and success. Amen. And also success in, in staying healthy, alive for a long time, and, in, and with that, also in raising of, of children. Amen. And the, the blessing, uh, blessing of really not just having that treasure inside our hearts and even broadcasting, but also being able to pass it to the next generation. Oh, Amen. Amen. A- and with that, folks, uh, we finish off this part of the Yishai Fleischer Show on the Land of Israel Network. Uh, my email is yishai at thelandofisrael.com. Uh, Rav Mike is reachable at? Rav Mike at uh, thelandofisrael.com. Rav Mike at thelandofisrael.com. And his show is The Jewish Story. Uh, and we just talked about the next generation. Stay tuned right now for my lively, I would say, hyper talk uh, with a group of young Jewish leaders yesterday at the foreign ministry. So I'm telling you, there's energy. There's even one expletive there. Sorry about that. Whoops. Uh, but that's all right. Uh, there's, a, there's a high energy, uh, hyper discussion that you're going to be privy to. Uh, luckily, I, I smartly recorded it, and you're going to enjoy it, I think. You're listening to the show, and we are broadcasting live from Yerushalayim. God is broadcasting from Yerushalayim. His Torah is being broadcast from Yerushalayim. All you have to do is tune in. So tune in, stay strong, stay part of the story, and stay tuned. Here's the next part of the Yishai Fleischer Show. God bless you, and Shalom. Martyrdom does not end something, said Indira Gandhi. It is only a beginning. And for me, each episode is a new beginning. Because I'm telling a story of the past, set to build a present identity that's motivated to make the future of which we dream. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this... It's the Jewish story. Listen to the Jewish story with Rav Mike Foyer on thelandofisrael.com. Hebron is where the mothers and the fathers of the Jewish people are buried. Um, no other nation has such an incredible sight. We have an incredible site. Uh, that's uh, who's been to Hebron, okay? All right, about uh, about a third of the people. So a lot of you haven't been there, and uh, Hebron is about an hour south of Jerusalem, and uh, it's about it's if you've been to Gush Etzion, it's about 22 minutes past Gush Etzion into an area that's mostly an Arab area, an area which is in large part also the Palestinian Authority. And suddenly, when you drive through the Palestinian Authority and wherever you're allowed to drive on these roads, suddenly you take a turn in through Kirat Arba, 
and then you have this, uh, then you cross over into Hebron, and there's 85 Jewish families, together with the 8,500 uh, Jews that live in Kiryat Arba, makes a block of 10,000 Jews amongst about 160, 170, 180,000 Arabs. Okay? Uh, and so the existence of Jewish Hebron is not specifically or naturally pragmatic. It's not exactly pragmatic. It's uh, maybe problematic. Uh, and so therefore we have to ask the question, why are Jews there? Well, the simple answer to why are Jews there is that we've always been there. We've been there for uh, about 4,000 years, 3,800 years ago. Here's the history of Hebron. I'm gonna give it to you. I'm gonna give you 4,000 years in 60 seconds, okay? 4,000 years ago, uh, according to tradition, Abraham buried Sarah there, and then the rest of the biblical family is buried in this one place, except for Rachel, except for Joseph, but Abraham and Sarah, Avram and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka, and, uh, and uh, Yaakov and Leah. Okay, they're buried there. By the way, Yaakov, according to the Bible story, dies in Egypt, says to his children, don't bury me here in Egypt, bury me in Martha Machpelah, and they're like, okay, and he makes them swear, and they bury him in the same place in Hebron, does a whole procession, okay? So that was, what, 3,800 years ago, let's just call that 4,000 years, 4,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago, King David is crowned king over all of Israel in Hebron. All right, in Hebron. So Hebron is actually the first capital of all of Israel. 2,000 years ago, and here's now, you could dispute with me if you want about King David and stuff, no problem. 2,000 years ago, you already can't dispute. All right? 2,000 years ago, a Jewish king, albeit a weird one, named King Herod, builds a building. That building is a monumental tomb structure. It's written up in Josephus. There's no doubt about it. It's got the same stones as the Kotel. Those framed stones. You know when you come to the Kotel, you're like, you come to the Kotel and you look at it and it's got like a, as though like a kind of frame around it that's like inset. Have you noticed that? It's not just like a flat wall. Well, it's been a couple. Okay, no problem. You'll notice it next time. Uh, it's, called the, it's, called the, it's called the framed Herodian stone or the Herodian masonry. And that was 2,000 years ago. He builds a monumental structure. He's a Jewish king who builds a Jewish building so that Jewish people would know where their uh, fathers and mothers are. By the way, uh, just two parentheses, two small parentheses. One, according to Jewish tradition, Adam and Eve are buried there. It's not in the Bible. You don't have to believe that. But what's important about that is that if you do believe it, or if you like the concept of it, it doesn't even matter if it's true or not, it means that it's also the foundation of all of humanity. Humanity has a connection to this place, okay? The other thing I want to point out to you is that, uh, this is my second parenthesis, um, let's say you wanted to go to America, and you want, how many of us are from America here? Okay, the rest, what are we, South, of, South, uh, South Americans? Europe. 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 Everywhere, friends. French, okay. New Zealand. New Zealand. India. Who's from New Zealand? Brazil. All right. <laughs> Belgium, India, what do we got? He's great. There's Mumbai. Yeah. Mumbai, awesome. Chile. Okay. Chile as well. Fantastic. Czech Republic, Beautiful. Poland, on and on. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, that's good. I've been to like 50 or 60% of those. Um, uh, Czech Republic, great place. Uh, I have a Czech gun. Who's from, who's, from, who's from the Czech Republic? Great folks. Okay. Um, South Africa. South Africa. I'm heading out there. All right, so, so wait, if you now, now I'll have to just be for a second, really, please do not believe that I'm America-centric, I'm not. Uh, but let's say you wanted to go see the founding members of America, where would you go? Have you guys been to Washington, D.C.? There's the Washington Monument, there's the Lincoln Memorial, there's the, uh, what do you call it, you go to, uh, 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 what do you call Mount Rushmore, you see four presidents. What do all these people have in common in America, these, uh, these founders of America? 
They're all men. men. They're white men. That's exactly right. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. They're white men. That's right. If you want to go see the founders of the Jewish people, it's not a men's thing. It's mothers and fathers. It's okay. two by two. Okay? We're not a idea. The Jewish people are an ethnicity, a race, a peoplehood, a family that gives birth to a nation. So understand it that way. It's mothers and fathers. Mothers and fathers. That's a big difference. That's the end of parentheses number two. Where were we? 2,000 years ago, Herod builds uh, a big, beautiful uh, monument. It's there today. Unbroken. Never touched. Uh, it still serves today what it served 2,000 years ago. Then you have, 1,000 years ago, a great Jewish philosopher, thinker, Maimonides, Rambam. He comes to Hebron. He writes a letter. I was here. I prayed at this place. 500 years ago. Uh, no, 700 years ago, the Mamluks take over. Do you know who the Mamluks are? It's a type, of, uh, a type of Egyptian that took over this region. They are not so nice. They kick out the Jews out of our own building. And they say, hey, guess what? This is a Muslim building now. You're out. And Abraham, he's a Muslim. And you have nothing to do with, with this place. They just kick us out. And for 700 years, from 1267 to 1967, 1267 to 1967, we were kicked out of our own building. And the building was now renamed the Ibrahimi Mosque, okay? Uh, as 500 years ago, that was 700 years ago. 500 years ago, Jews are kicked out from Spain, 1492, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of them come to Hebron. They're kicked out and they move through North Africa, through Southern Europe, get to the land of Israel. Turkey's in control, they make it to the land of Israel. 500 years ago, Spanish Jews set up a new synagogue uh, and a new community in Hebron. That's 500 years ago. And we had great relations with the Arabs for 500 years until 1929. 1929, there's a bad guy. Bad guy, his name is Haj Amin al-Husseini. Haj Amin al-Husseini, very long and very sad story why he takes power, very sad why he actually gets control because it didn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be that his version of Islam, his jihadist slash Nazi, there are many pictures of him in collab uh, with Hitler. He was actually part of a Bosnian unit to make sure that trains from Europe that passed through Bosnia, that no Jews would escape. He was part of the, uh, of the final solution. He, sadly, for various reasons, takes power, and his agenda takes over. By the way, 1919 Peace Conference in Paris, okay? 1919 Peace Conference in Paris. Uh, Emir Faisal from the Hejaz from Saudi Arabia meets with Chaim Weizmann. And do you know what they do? Check it out on Wikipedia. You can read it for yourself. They exchange letters. And in these letters, they say the following. Here's what, what Emir Faisal, a great Arab leader, says. Welcome, my brothers. You are my Semitic brothers. Come to your land. Let us rise up together, a Jewish country, a Semitic country, along with the Arab countries around. Let us, you guys will help us because you're good at stuff. And we'll help you because we're from here. We'll rise up together and we'll help each other. These are letters, 1919. No difference between today and yesterday. Same people, same place. But there was a completely different concept uh, that, that Amir Faisal was saying. And Chaim Weizmann, of course, was such a beautiful vision. Sadly, only 10 years later, an evil jihadist takes over. 1929, 1921 riots in Jerusalem. 1929 riot in Hebron. Hebron. 67 Jews are murdered in a horrific fashion. ISIS, not a new thing. And at the time, the British are in charge. The British don't really like the, Israeli, the Jewish-Israeli presence. They kick out the Jews out of Hebron breaking 3,800 years of life in Hebron. 1967, we come back. And here's the question. Is it liberation or occupation? 
liberation or occupation? Are we occupying somebody else's land or are we coming back to our ancestral homeland? The houses that we live in today are the houses that were taken away from us in 1929, majority of them anyway. That tomb structure that was once renamed as, a, like a, as somebody else's tomb is our structure. Our king built it. We're from here. Our moms and dads are here. Now, why am I sweating a little bit? Why am I sweating? Because, because literally, literally, I got a call last night that Tsipi Khatubeli, the deputy, you know, deputy foreign minister here, uh, wants a... Okay, don't be embarrassed. It's okay. It's all right. It's okay. I'm sure you're good people. Uh, you know, what is UNESCO to me? UNESCO to me, I'm going to say something radical, but let's just have some fun, right? Because you don't want to be bored. UNESCO is the legitimate arm of the jihad. The legitimate arm of the jihad. These guys, what are they in charge of? They're in charge of making sure that history is upkept, that people remember history, that, 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 that history is erased, and yet they are actively in history erasure. That is what they do. That is what they do. They literally say, Jews, you were never on the Temple Mount. Oh, did I say Temple Mount? I meant uh, Al-Aqsa. You guys are not from here. Okay? It's true that inside of the Al-Aqsa, uh, not Al-Aqsa, inside the Dome of the Rock, there are writings in Arabic that say here's where the temple stood. Okay, don't worry about that. It's true that the Waqf writes in their books in the 20s, this is where two temples stood. Don't worry about that. Today, UNESCO, which is the white suit-wearing, tie-wearing, you know, European good folks, you have to trust them, are saying to us, Jews, you were never from here. And of course, therefore, there is no jihad against us there's actually a freedom liberation movement, a self-determination against us, the occupiers. If we're foreigners, then the attack against us is totally legitimate. If we are holding on to somebody else's land, if we're thieves, then it's totally right to fight thieves. It's totally right to fight thieves. But if we are actually the people of this land, if we're the indigenous or an indigenous people here, and that building is actually our building, we're from here, then we're not in occupation, we're in liberation. Before I ever make talks like this, and so, oh, so that's why I was at a meeting, I drove, I got all, I was in Hebron this morning, I had to do a VIP tour of important people. Then I ran to the office, finished the paperwork for Khatabeli. Then I ran to Khatabeli, there was traffic because today is Eid al-Adha, which is a big Muslim holiday. Big traffic from Hebron to Yerushalayim, got stuck. Went to Khatabeli's office just now, sat with her, then ran here, okay? That's why I'm a little bit sweating, a little bit hyped up, all right? Um, before I ever give any talk, I always like to say one simple thing. I am not trying to convince you, I'm not trying to teach you, I'm not trying to get into your head, okay? I'm sharing with you my narrative. Don't believe me, think it's BS, look it up on Wikipedia, you don't have to trust me, but you do have to accept that I do represent, official, in official capacity, the general settler narrative. Okay, you know the word settler, is that a good word or a bad word, what do you think? Good word, what do you think? Me? Yeah, what do you think? Lately, a battle, but... Uh, <laughs> But the, world, but the world center was more naturally taken uh, some years ago, especially in other uh, in other regions of the world. Yeah. But if you talk about it's all all it's all about it's some sometimes it's all about the narrative. So in what about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the narrative is so important that some words take pejorative in the moment that you uh, hear them. So one of them is settler. Good answer. Uh, um, From the story you're telling, it's inaccurate to use that term. Absolutely, correct. But you're saying this narrative reflects that of settlers in general? They're all reclaiming sites as you've described? Or can you... Two, two good questions there. One is, you're absolutely right. The word settler is not a good word. It's a pejorative word. Huh? A returner or resettler or, 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 or let's call it... Uh, 
you know, you know, indigenous peoples, uh, you know, coming back to homeland, uh, 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 you know, native, Aboriginal native peoples. Absolutely, I 100% believe that. But recently, I started taking the word settler as exactly in, in what I call what you just alluded to very well is what I call the narrative war. And in the narrative war, I've decided to take attack. Do you remember when the word gay used to be a bad word? I don't know if you were in your... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay, the word gay used to be like a bad word. It was like a pejorative, like a negative word that's like a slur. But then they turned it and they started using it as a positive. I'm like, wait a minute. Well, before that, it meant something else, too. Right, okay. But anyway, when we were kids, that was like a bad word, okay? Uh, I said settler. That is a bad word because it means that you're not really from the place, that you're like an occupier or, or a colonialist or a stranger. And it's not a good word. I don't even like that word, certainly. But I started saying, you know what? If people know that word, I'm going to use it, and I'm going to use it backwards. I'm going to start being like, yeah, I am a settler. A settler is a Jew who wants to live in these forward places, which are our biblical homeland, our historical homeland. By the way, don't get stuck. I ne Did you hear me say that God gave us the land? You didn't hear me say that, right? I didn't say anything like that. I'm talking about, I might believe that, but I'm not going to say that to you. I'm going to say it's our historic homeland. We've been here for 3,000 years, 3,800 years. The world recognized our rights here. And I am a Jew who's willing to live in this part of the land and to push back on bad guys and to push against the two-state solution. Because I don't want anybody coming to my small country, taking away my important strategic and central heartland and making a Palestinian state there or any other state there. Okay? Look, we've tried land for peace. Have we tried land for peace? Yes. yes we tried it. Recently, we tried it with Gaza. How did that work out, you think? You don't think it worked that well? Recently, I just was debating Shalom Achshav, peace now, and the guy was like sitting in front of a serious audience, and he's like, no, that was a good move. Gaza worked out. And I'm like, dude, you know, it's like nobody in Israel thinks that, okay? We've had three horrific wars in six years, and these dudes are, are tunneling underneath all the time and, and rocketeering against us. It did not work out. It did not work out. And like, by saying that in front of this audience, you're like exposing yourself as being like out there like loony. All right? Like, giving land for peace or giving land away sounds like a good idea. It used to sound like a good idea. But today, it, it's clear that it, it's not going to work. It never was going to work for the following simple reasons. One, this region is, how many Arabs live in this region? In this region, the Middle East, how many Arabs live here? Millions. Come on, don't give me cop-out answers. Huh? This is an important little fact that I hope that you memorize for the rest of from here on in. There's about 360 million Arabs in this region. Not Muslims, Arabs, okay? 360, there's about a billion plus Muslims in the world, but in this region there's about 360 million Arabs. How many Jews are there in this region? Six and a half. Okay, 6.4 6 million Jews. Okay, just get that picture. Big Arab Middle East, tiny little Jewish state. What's nice about it is that we're all Semitic peoples. We're actually related, right? We actually have the same genes. We have the same similar language, similar religion, and all that. So we're actually related folks. Uh, but understand that our little country is a haven from 2,000 years of persecution and a haven of a region that has been not easy for us. It's a tiny little country. Okay, in the corner of this region. Now, if you give away more of this small little land, which is the highland, controlling highland, you very well get, may get what happened in Gaza, which is the jihad uses it as a forward base, as a forward base. 
Now, I'm gonna, I wanna, I wanna run a little exercise. Are you watching? You wanna play a game? Here we go, let's play a game. This is my great-grandfather's glasses. Okay, my, his Oakleys, okay? And, <laughs> and he, he got this from his great-grandfather. We've passed it down for generations, these Oakleys. And I wanna give it to you for peace. Thank you. How does that sound? Great. <laughs> it sounds nice, right? Yeah. What do you think about me as I give this to you? It's nice and generous. Nice and generous. And you're willing to compromise What's for peace. The There's no catch. That's, is that, that's the... That's the that, if, does it sound good to you or not? No, it sounds as if they didn't really have a value for you. Okay, good. Good. That's one way. Good analysis. What are you, Israeli? What was that accent? What? No, I'm from Slovakia. Slovakia, very good. Okay. Okay. Okay, that's what she said. That's a similar thing. There's another way to understand it, which is, I'm weak. I want to do anything for peace. I'm like, I'm willing to. In the Middle East, if I say, here, take Jerusalem, just take half of Jerusalem, just let's have peace. It sounds like, oh my God, the other guy is totally spineless. He's a wimp. He's a sissy. He's willing to give up his, like, Jerusalem. Or I'm willing to give up Hebron, where my mothers and fathers are buried. Take the tombs of my fathers and mothers. Just give me peace. Imagine a first night in jail, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? First night in jail, right? First night in jail, you just come out to the yard. You're like, hey, everybody, I just want peace. How does that sound? What's going to happen, okay? You cannot talk like that in the Middle East. Land for peace is a, a sissy-ish way of talking, which smells bad in the nose. That's a sexist word. Is it? And homophobic. Okay, let's use a different word. A, a weak way, okay? Okay. I, I, I don't mean it. I, I thought sissy was gender neutral, but if you tell me different, then I'll, I'll accept that. Uh, I, I, what I, I don't have, there's no gender issue here. I'm talking about specifically weakness that the other side may understand as weakness. That's all I mean. Okay? Um, and so the two-state solution, land for peace, was always going to fail. It was always going to fail. In this region, you, you don't give up land. In 55 land conflicts in this region, only one party says, if I give away more land, there'll be peace. Okay? Nobody in this region talks like that. And here's where the real colonial comes, colonialism comes in. When the West tells us that the only solution is the two-state solution, that is cultural colonialism. That is an idea that comes from a different country. If you're shopping at Walmart, there's one way of shopping, but if you try to shop at Walmart in the shuk here at Machane Yehuda, you're not going to get to buy anything, okay? <laughs> you're not going to be able to get anything, because different rules. The Middle East has different rules. And therefore, the two-state solution was always going to fail, has always failed, and has only empowered jihadism, and has also done even something even worse, that you may be victims of, which is it has actually managed to empower the jihad to say that we are colonialists, that we are stealing somebody else's land. And the scariest thing of them all today is that they've managed to take our kids, Jewish kids, on American campuses and other places around the world, which you know better, and have turned them against Israel. Our own people today believe that Israel is a thief, an occupier, a uh, colonialist, a rapist, I don't know. <coughs> And if that, if that is, if, if, if young people are going to believe that, then we're going to lose a whole generation. Does anybody know what I'm talking uh, about here? Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, well, there's a lot of excitement here. I said something. You never no, answered no. my other question, uh, by the way. You, 
What, just what was your question? You said your narrative reflects that of all settlers, and I asked if other settlement areas have the same connection. Yes. 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 I will. I'll take questions. Here we go. Everybody, calm down. Here we go. We got. I'm going to shut up now. I'm going to take your questions. But remember to ask me. Somebody's got to ask me. What is the right wing alternative to the two-state solution? Because I only made fun of two-state solution, but we actually do have suggestions. Let me answer this young lady first. She asked first. The answer is good point. And the answer is absolutely. For example, I lived in the town of Beit El, right? Bethel. That's the original Bethel. Many places around the world are called Bethel. Beit El is where Jacob had his dream of the ladder. Shechem, or Nablus, is where Joseph's tomb is. It's been destroyed by jihadist elements. By the way, I use the word jihadist because I refuse to use the word Arab, which is a nation or a peoplehood, and I refuse, the word, to refuse, the word, refuse to use the word Muslim. Because that's a big religion. You call them all jihadists? No, oh, the yeah. opposite. Oh, okay. The opposite. I am limiting the, the, the fight against those people who have, a, who have an intolerant supremacist ideology. I'm, not, I'm saying the opposite. I was last, not this Thursday, last Thursday I was in Istanbul meeting with Muslim clerics who think that Israel is a good thing and she has a right to exist according to the Quran. We're always meeting with Arabs and Muslims, whatever it is, that have a different approach. Therefore, I refuse to use that. The jihad is a much more limited phenomenon. It's like using the word, let's say, we had a war with Germany or do we have a war with Nazis? Nazis is an ideology. I don't have a, an ethnic problem with Germans. I a problem with ideologies. So I've tried to put that, use that word. Many other places, especially, of course, Jerusalem, where I live on the, I don't live in Hebron, I live on the Mount of Olives. In Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem, that, of course, is where all of Jewish history was. It's a mountain of 3,000 years of Jewish burial, right across from Temple Mount, etc. So, yes, the biblical stories took place in West Bank, Judea, and Samaria. And also the majority of Jewish history took place in these places, okay? So yes, there's a long connection for most settlers to where they live. Sir. Yes, thanks so much. Thank you so much for coming. Um, really, uh, really enjoyed your speech. Uh, my question is just a little bit long, but not really long. So. As long as there's a question mark at there the end. There is a question yeah. mark at the end. Okay, so uh, four hours ago, we met with somebody uh, from the Palestinian community who uh, is really in touch with the under 40 population. Uh, he lives in the, in the PA, and he said that the under 40 Palestinian population has something in common with the Israeli right, in that they are increasingly in uh, support of a one-state solution. Uh, right on. the, you know, one day Mahmoud Abbas is going to die, one day soon. and a young uh, Palestinian <laughs> will say, you know, let's, uh, let's uh, uh, tear apart the Palestinian Authority and ask the Israelis to annex the entirety of the West Bank and, get, and have responsibility for the uh, social well-being of the Palestinians. You have this dude's number? They will, uh, I can give it to you. Good, after perfect. Um, <laughs> they will ask for citizenship rather than uh, a state. They will ask to participate in the Israeli democracy. Now, I've read the uh, right-wing alternatives. Uh, and, and most of them include a path to citizenship. Some of them do. Where some of them, some of them do. My question is, and there's a question mark. Uh, do you uh, sincerely believe that uh, the international community will accept uh, the a state in which some people are disenfranchised from voting? And do you believe that if you give Palestinians the opportunity, uh, that they will not take the opportunity to participate in Israeli democracy? Because I've heard a lot from representatives of the settler movement that say we will give them the option to become uh, citizens, but they will not take that option. That's the question. You guys are fantastic. You guys are great, really. That was, uh, sometimes I, I get these people like, blah, they don't know anything. That was a great question, and I, I much prefer to deal on that level than on, than on like teaching basics. 
So thank you for that. And I'm going to answer your question in detail and try to do it fast. You, you asked, first thing, I'm very happy to hear about this young man. I'm happy to hear about this Arab guy. Okay? And that's great. And I think that that's, that's the way forward. And he's absolutely right. We do have that in common. That is correct. Okay? And given that both me and him, we're probably going to win in the end because the fuddy-duddies that are still saying two-state solution are just trying to keep their jobs or bureaucrats that are still saying the same thing they did 50 years ago. It's like, you know, they're already leaving the scene and it's not realistic. You know, you can't really pull out the settlements and all well, it's over, right? So, so, and politically also in Israel, it's shifted to the right and all that. It's like, it's like done. So he's absolutely right. He's cutting edge. He's thinking forward. Um, but let's frame the question more tightly which is, therefore, what, what's going to happen is we're going to annex Judea and Samaria, put it under Israeli sovereignty. It's going to be Israel. And then the question is, what do we do with our Arab minority? And I don't mean that in any uh, improper way. I mean to say, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle our Arab minority? And your question in various ways is, do we give them a pathway to citizenship that's real? Will they take the pathway to citizenship? These are all good questions. There is more than one opinion about this matter today. There's about five that I listed. I recently had a New York Times op-ed in February. Look it up. It's called The Settler's Vision for the Future of Israel. And it basically talks about five alternatives to a two-state solution. Okay? Um, one of them says, the first one says, Jordan is really, uh, these people used to be Jordanian citizens. And Jordan is really the Palestinian state. It's right next door. And it's got 80% Palestinian people. I'm not saying, let's kick out the Palestinians that live here and throw them all to Jordan. No. I'm saying, give them citizenship, like they used to have till 1984, of Jordan. Let them vote in Amman, but live here as expats. Means that they'll be residents here with resident status and have voting rights in their country. That's opinion number one. Oh, I forgot to say, because of your cute little smile, I have to say the following. Every one of my ideas has a stinky element. Everyone has a crappy shitty, bad element, okay? Every single one of them. And because the situation currently is not so great. And, and so therefore, I'm going to give you alternatives to at least think about. We're going to open our minds up a little bit. And yes, there's going to be, you can poke holes in every one of my alternative suggestions. But I can poke holes in two-state solution. So let's now, let's open our minds up. Be, before I go on to alternative number two, you said something about the, the international community. <gasps> Oh my God, the international community, what will they accept? I didn't even know that they like, have a say in accepting or not accepting what sovereign countries do. We give us your money, we give you our money. You don't give us our money. You give us $3 billion that all goes back to buying stuff. And, and, and by the way, I'd be happy if, and I love America, I respect America, I would love to see it give us $0 and have actual just regular trade. And I don't need the $3 billion. It's a blip on our gross national product. It's absolutely meaningless. It's only so that we could like cement some kind of relationship. I personally absolutely hate it, detest it. And I think that we, so that I never want to hear, I never, I never want to hear that thing again in my life. That gives money. But I want to say something about the international community. Turkey is occupying Cyprus, right? Nobody says anything. It's been occupying since the 70s. Nobody says anything. America has got three and a half million Puerto Ricans who don't vote in national elections. Nobody says anything. Nobody gives a damn. A few clicks away from here, 500,000 people have been killed over the last few years. Nobody cares. So I don't think that the international community is going to flip out if we decide to do it one way or another. I think they'll just be like, say whatever they say, and really, who cares? We're a sovereign country. That's just a little point. 
Uh, option number one, I gave Jordan's Palestine. You didn't like that a little bit. You gave me a wry smile. Fair enough. I can understand why. Maybe because we can't really force a country to, to accept another citizenship, or maybe because you know they live here. Shouldn't they vote here? Okay. Option number two, Professor Mordechai Kedar says, he's a good friend of mine, he's a professor out of Bar-Ilan, he says, you think there's a Palestinian people? They're really not a people. They're really a very diverse amount of people that, that are tribal. They are tribal. In fact, Hebron Arabs do not marry Shechem Arabs, Nablus Arabs. They don't marry them. They're just different. They, they see themselves as, as, a, as a different... Uh, a, they don't want to marry one another. They may wave the same flag today, but they just... They're not really feel themselves as related as you may think. They're much more tribal in a Middle East type of way. Countries is a very European concept. The Middle East hasn't necessarily, and you see that all the European lines are almost broken down. The European lines that have been created here have almost all failed. Only ancient states have basically remained. Egypt, you know, Israel, Iran, you know, the rest have kind of falling apart. They don't have real lines because they're not built that way. They're not thinking that way. So he says, give them self-rule in their area. There's seven big major Arab cities. Let them have self-governance. He calls it emirates. Let them have their emirates. It could be either under totally their own sovereignty, or what I would prefer is under Israeli sovereignty, but they would have courts. They would have uh, you know, governance, governor. They would have their mukhtars. They would have the old system that rules their thing in their Arab areas. The vast majority of Arabs would be ruled in this way, according to Kedar. The sovereignty would be, let's say in my way, sovereignty would be Israeli, but they would have self-rule. This dovetails very well with what uh, Minister of Education Bennett says. He says, let's just annex Area C. The 400,000 settlers that live in, in, in the, the West Bank or the Jews that live in Judea and Samaria uh, live mostly in Area C. Just annex C. Guys, this is a little, a little disturbing. Uh, so just annex Area C. So, you know, and that dovetails with, with Mordechai Kedar. Just annex C. Let A and B be mostly Arab, but let them have self-rule. No? Uh, those, are, those are some of the options. I think option number three is probably the most realistic, and this is what you alluded to. No, option number four, excuse me. We did one, two, and three. Option number four is the most realistic. And that's what you spoke about, which is annexation, residency for the Arabs, pathway to citizenship through the oath of loyalty. You see, it's all in hand motions, right? Residency, uh, 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 pathway of citizenship through oath of loyalty. Annexation, residency, uh, citizenship. Now, some people say, some people say, give them residency, like in Jerusalem and in the Golan, and let them choose. And you're right, there are some settlers who say they won't want citizenship because they're not really looking for the vote. They're not, they don't have democratic, deep democratic roots. They're just looking to live, have rights, have upward mobility. And we're willing to give that. Israel is willing to give Arabs upward mobility. One second, one second. Uh, and you're next. Uh, Jews are, Israelis are naturally willing to give Arabs upward mobility in this country. Um, you know, Arabs are in our, in our universities, in, in, in our hospitals, in, in our malls, in our Knesset, and in our Supreme Court. There's no problem with that. We, we, don't, have a, we don't have a racial issue with that, okay? As long as this, this remains a Jewish state. So in Jerusalem and in the Golan, we've given them residency. Most of them have not taken up. So, some, so there's one approach that says give them a pathway to citizenship. And don't worry about it. So there's one approach that says give them citizenship. One approach says give them a pathway to citizenship. And another approach says no. The Middle East is not a democratic region. Jewish and democratic means this is a democracy for the small Jewish enclave in this region to protect itself. And therefore, for, for Gentiles, goyim, non-Jews, God bless them. They can live in our country with a Bill of Rights. But the, the voting is for, for Jews. That sounds a little harsh. 
But remember that I gave you the example of America. Whenever expedient people use that, I have a mashal, a parable of the of the uh, hitchhiker. Have you guys been hitchhiking in Israel at all? No. Okay. Where I live, I pick up hitchhikers every day. Okay, I pick up hitchhikers all the time. And when I pick up a hitchhiker, I want that hitchhiker to be safe, comfortable, and get to their destination. But if the hitchhiker says to me, can I have the steering wheel? I say, no. Okay? Same thing. I have a minority living amongst me. I want them to be safe, comfortable, get to their destination. I want them to have upward mobility. But I'm still pretty concerned about keeping this a Jewish state. So therefore, I want to treat my residents right, but not give them full carte blanche. If they want self-determination, if they can't swallow it, you have 22 Arab countries to choose from. You want to stay with us? Welcome, marhaba, but you have to accept these rules. That's a Middle East attitude, okay? Some people disagree with that. They say, no, give them a real pathway to citizenship, and my liberal friends can swallow that mostly. I have found that my liberal, the liberal folks that I speak with every day uh, basically say they could swallow this idea. Re annexation, residency, pathway to citizenship. Your Arab friend basically was saying that. And demography? Looks like, our demo looks like demography is not what people told us. Looks like our demography is pretty strong. Uh, there's many, yes, there's alternative demography today. They say that uh, a lot of the uh, Palestinian demography has been overblown. There's a lot of Palestinian exodus. They want to move to America, to Germany, whatever. And we are actually having a lot of babies in our country. And if you're so, wrong. Huh? And if you're wrong. Yeah, is the that's, a, that's a good question. But, but I, when I speak with people on the left, what they say to me, they, they give me the whole spiel about how they want to be Jewish and democratic, and therefore they want to what? Pull away the lines of the country so that they don't give democracy to the Arabs. This big liberal idea is gerrymandering. I will move my democracy away so that I don't have to give it because I'm so democratic that I don't want to give it to the Arabs. It's so important to me for I have a Jewish democratic state, but I never want to give it to the Arabs, so I'll just move away from it. Do you understand? I say, as a right-winger, I will have more sovereignty and give more people rights more people, a chance for upward mobility, get rid of the corrupt jihadist Palestinian authority, boo. By the way, ask any Arab, I, get, I, get, I speak with Arabs all the time, I say, who hates Arabs more, Yishai Fleischer or Mahmoud Abbas? Who hates Arabs more? They're like, Mahmoud Abbas. Every time, every time they say, they detest the guy, true or not, anybody knows Arabs, you'll ask any Arab, they detest Mahmoud Abbas, unless they're on his payroll, and even then. But uh, uh, I say, more people, more rights, not necessarily full voting rights but more rights. I'm willing to extend my country and extend its goodness. It's a really good country. Option number five, I'll finish off with this. That was number four. Again, four split into give them immediate citizenship, give them a pathway to citizenship, or give them no citizenship, but rights. Option number five says... Exchange of populations. Yes. Option number five is exchange of populations, meaning to say, the, but not forcible. Okay? Well, the, those voluntary, those Arabs who are like, this is not working out, and there are a lot of who are, who are interested in leaving today, Israel will help facilitate their emigration with compensation. Okay? And we, because we have a conflict that is really not really solvable, it's, it's really, in this op option, it's not really something that we can, we can't really, uh, uh, you know, co those two narratives can't coexist. Let's help those people who can't, co can't coexist, can't live in Israel, emigrate out. By the way, I have met many Arabs who say to me, the option that you said, because listen, looks like Israel isn't leaving anyway. Like we'd love to have a Palestinian state, but it doesn't look like Israel's leaving. They have their thing, they have their history, their narrative, they're not leaving anywhere. I think that's totally fair. I, th I think that's fine. Meaning to say, my, my narrative wins, I, I, that's a Middle East way. I'm strong, I'm right, I have my, my belief, my narrative, I'm going to assert it, and I will be good to the good people, bad to the bad people, and, and that'll win the day.
Those are the five options. Yes. Thank you. So I have You're very into fairness. Thank you very much. I'm from San Francisco. I hear that. I'm naturally. I get it. I get it. No, it's all good. So I, go, I go to San Francisco quite a bit. Yeah. I have another approach, which is a, a two-state solution. So let's imagine we have this new state of Palestine occupying the whole West Bank, okay? And you are in Hebron because, as well, you have an ideology that it is our land, it is where our ancestors and our fathers are buried there. Okay, so we come from there. Okay, but what if the Palestinian, this new Palestinian state, is occupying also that city of Hebron? And um, the solution that they give is rather you become a Palestinian citizen or you live. So, which is what you are planning as well, like to do to the Palestinian. You, we give them the right to, to be citizen. We give them a path, for example. So, it's exactly exactly the same to those old Jewish settlers uh, in Hebron. Uh, would you rather come go back to Israel? or become a Palestinian citizen if that happens? Okay, good question. Uh, uh, you, 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 right at the end, you, you, you steered a little bit. Uh, I just want to kind of take your question at the beginning all the way to the end. Uh, yes, that's a logical, that's a logical and reasonable uh, uh, approach, except that it's just not realistic on the ground, in my opinion, of course, of course. Uh, uh, because the Palestinian Authority has many times said it will never accept any Jews inside. Mahmoud Abbas has said that over and over again. And generally speaking, we left Arab countries under persecution. We don't exactly want to go back to live under Arab uh, uh, control again. We created a Jewish state for exactly this purpose of defense and not to go back into, you know, under other state things. So a person like me is certainly not interested in that. I can understand how that sounds reasonable, but it's not realistic on the ground at all. Okay, but given especially also that the Middle East today is moving towards jihadism as a general yeah. milieu. So it's just, that's a good thought. It's a pretty thought. It's not real. And we are not in the, that is not what we're about. We're about going back home and asserting our country in what was our historical land. Okay, so I hear it, but I don't think it's real and I don't want that. But okay, Definitely a fair approach. That's, let's put it this way. If I write the article, that's not what I'm advocating, okay? Yeah, of course. Right. Remember, by the way, that I'm an advocate not for just fairness or for goodness or for the Palestinians. I'm an advocate for the Jewish people. I work, I'm a, I work for the Jewish people. I'm concerned with the welfare of the Jewish people. That does not mean I want to trample on other people's rights or be brutal, God forbid. But I am more concerned with the defense and protection and the welfare of my peoplehood as any statesman, any person should be, first and foremost. Anyone would do that. What's good for you may not be good for the diaspora Jews. That's a good point, but you'll have but to this wait. This is not a debate. No, that's a, that's a very interesting question and one that I deal with often. I'd like to answer that, but let's go to this young lady. Yes. Hi, I'm yes, Alexis, and I'm from Washington, D.C. What was your name? Alexis. Hi, Alexis. Um, and again, thank you for coming. And it's, I always come in with the... <coughs> optimistic that I'm going to hear something new and I have and I really appreciate that. Um, part of what I do every day is to train high school kids in the U.S. of what they're going to expect when they go on a college campus. And you brought that up um, earlier in your, in your opening talk about how Jews today are being told and have lost this love for Israel. And I can't disagree with you and I think that that's one of the biggest threats that we face is that they see these universalist values as part of their Jewish values and they get to campus and they want to be environmentalists. They want to be marchers in the pro-LGBTQI movements. They want to be all of these things. And they're told when they get there, you can't do that because you're also a Zionist. 
And it's really hard because they have to choose, well, do I fight for Black Lives Matter? Do I fight for LGBTQI rights? Do I fight for the environment? Or do I fight for Israel? And their universalist values are winning out because it's more popular and it's easy and nobody likes to feel uncomfortable. So what is your solution for me talking to those kids? How do I tell them and how do I teach them that they can be all of these things and still also love Israel? Really fabulous question. Um, the first thing I would say is that the commentary that you made is not about those kids, but about the society around them. This is true. Right? It's like, it's like, why can't I march in LGBT and be pro-Israel? Well, what's wrong with that? Is it, isn't standing up for a small minority of peoples in, in this world who have been persecuted and have, are trying to regain rights in their ancestral homeland, isn't that a liberal cause? Well, to me, no, no, to wait, wait, wait. I'm trying to make a point yeah. to you is that like, you really asked me a question, not about the kids, but about the world. I would spin that question back to you and say, like, well, what's wrong with campus? What's wrong with the world that you can't be those two things? Like, why can't I? Right? Like, there's something wrong with, with where they're at. The first thing I would do is send them to a, a happy campus. I'm serious. I wouldn't send them. No, I tell people all the time. less and less by the day. So You're absolutely right. No, no, I did, but, but like Daniela, for example, and I'm going to pick on you for a minute and a half, just graduated from the University of Maryland last year. It's a happy campus. Right. I was going to say Maryland. I was going to say one of the happy campuses. huge pro-Israel Sure. Been there. Last year, we had to deal with like chalking. Chalk it's a new verb where you put like bad things in chalk on the sidewalk. Ooh. I know, it's, it's, it's horrible, but it's like it's uncomfortable to walk to school and be like, Jews are baby killers. Like, I don't Absolutely. want to see that. That's first thing, good. first thing, let me applaud the other side. I mean, they're good. They're real good. I mean, they're good. And what is their, what defines their real goodness is that they're aggressive. They are like... Should I say they're like they're, they're not like huh? they're master co-opters. Right, and they're not, but they're not they're not they're not ninny. Can I use the word hey, can I use the word ninny? Is that a cool word? What, what is the word I could I use? Know. Give me you a word. Listen to me. It's Give me a word that I could use to be like 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 a like a lame. like lame. Although that's being to disabled people. I don't know. Come on, give me a word. Come on, give me a chance here. Come on. Let's let's pick a word. Let's absurd. use lame. Absurd. No, it's not absurd. No, no. no. Weak, weak. I'm saying the other side is talking in heat. It's talking in passion. You two stole my land. And we say, hey, but we invented the cell phone. You two stole the land. Hey, we have gay rights. You two stole the land. We go to Haiti to help, like, you know, Haitians after an earthquake. It's so lame, so lame. You know, it's like, it's like, I'll tell you a story, okay? I was, it was during the Gaza War. It was, I was during the Gaza War, and, and I got a, it was, it was exactly the Gaza War, I was working at a radio station, I got a phone call from, it says Qatar, on the phone. When it says Qatar, that means who's calling? Al Correct. Al Jazeera is calling. <laughs> and I'm like, hi. They're like, hey, Mr. Fasha, can you come in, please? They're so nice. Like, can you come in on, the, on our show? And I say what I always say to these folks, yes, I'm willing to come in, absolutely, I love Al Jazeera, but I have to be with only one other person. Because when you're like on a panel, it's like anti-Semite, 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 anti-Semite. Answer, uh, anti-Semite, anti-Semite. It's impossible. It's like, I, I, I've been there. I have really like, don't watch those videos of mine. Because I'm just like, uh. But, 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 but when I'm like one-on-one, -on -one, then I'm like, you know, I'm hitting back hard. And, and, I'll t and of course, don't forget the moderator is also anti-Israel. So it's two against one. You know, I can live with that. Um, but uh, so I get on Al Jazeera. Oh, so before I get on Al Jazeera, so I have a, a big, um, uh, a big uh, uh, friend in the media here in Israel, a great writer. So I said to him, hey, buddy, I don't want to use his name. I said, oh, I said, hey, buddy, I'm going on Al Jazeera. The war was happening. 
And he says to me, I said to him, what do you think I should say? He goes, Yishai, you got to talk about our moral army, how moral our army is. We try so hard not to hit schools, kids, and this and that, how we send a missile that's actually empty, it knocks on the roof, and then everybody knows to get out. This is what he says to me. He's like, you have to show them that we actually have a moral army. How's that sound to you guys? Good? I said to him, Gil, I said, I said, Gil, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard. The minute I'm going to start talking about a moral army, there's a video guy behind the thing. He's waiting with a video clip to run with the, with the as I say, oh, we're the most moral army. We really try hard. They play the clip of the baby being carried out with the hand hanging out, okay? And I look like the biggest Jew liar you've ever seen in the world, okay? That's what I look like. It's like, it's like uh, you know, uh, yeah, we try, we try to save. You're going to come out as a weakling on Al Jazeera. So he's like, okay. I get on Al Jazeera. They're like, Mr. Fleischer, how is it that, that 70 Israelis have been killed and over 3,000 Palestinians, 2,000 Palestinians? I'm like, and the video guy's waiting, right? <laughs> what do you, I, I, like, he wants me to say, well, we have a moral army. We try so hard, blah, blah, blah. Right? He's waiting. Like, here, so they're like, Mr. Fleischer, how is it that 70 Israelis have been killed and over 2,000 Palestinians? I'm like, that is exactly what will happen to you when you start with us. Don't mess with us. We're a post-Holocaust nation. We're here to defend ourselves. You start with us, you're going to get hammered. Every one of your rockets will get 10 from us. Anybody messes with us, that's exactly what we do. Learn the lesson. Do not mess with this little country. And if you put your children in front of our rockets, they're going to die. That's your fault. All right? Don't start this country. Here's them. They're like, video guys like, <laughs> should I put a play yet? Yeah, uh, the, there was a pause. There's a pause. They're just like... Uh, okay, then later on in that same interview, this is all on video, you see it for yourself uh, on YouTube, the same interview they say to me, they say, they go back again, they like, they loot, they, what do you call it, they, what's it called in English, they, uh, they loop around, they loop back around, right, they're coming back, they want to see if they could hit me again with that, so they're like, but Mr. Fleischer, how could it be that, uh, that 2,000, 3,000 rockets, that's what it was, 3,000 rockets have been shot and only, you know, these amount hit anything. How could it be? I'm like, well, I have to take off my journalist hat and put on my rabbi hat right now, okay? And it's, I got to say to you, it's min Allah, okay? <laughs> Allah is sweating away the rockets from Israel. There's no other way. What do you think? You think Hamas are stupid? You think they don't know how to aim? It's like, you said that? I said it to them. It's on video. And they're just like, again, the video. It's on YouTube. Okay? It's on YouTube. And, and, and it was just like, but I was talking Al Jazeera language. I was talking Al Jazeera language. I wasn't talking sissy, ninny, weak. You told them Allah was protecting the Jews? That's what I, that's what I told them. I said Allah was protecting the Jews. They were like, <laughs> why not? Why can't I say it? I say that to Arabs all the time. I say, I, I talk to Arabs all the time. I say to them, how do you think that we beat you in all these wars? Because we're better than you, smarter than you, richer than you, bigger than you. I say, it's been Allah. It says in the Quran four times that the Jews are going to come back to the land of Israel. Allah is protecting us. Why don't you submit to the will of Allah? They're just like, uh, you know, every time. I say to them, you know, because I speak this region. I don't try to give them Western talk. You remember this? Uh, when, remember they used to teach us, if anybody says it's occupied land, you answer, it's not occupied, it's only disputed. This is what they used to teach Jewish kids, like these weak, ninny answers, lame answers. Be proud, be chazak, get out there. And our country's ambivalence has led, about Judea and Samaria, has led to this weakness and this bad response. 
For example, I was just at APAC. Outside, Jewish kids are yelling, end the occupation. And inside, uh, 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 what's his name? The lawyer, Dershowitz, is talking about water technology. <laughs> They're accusing us of stealing somebody's land. And we're like, we're really good because we have water technology. Didn't you have a question? You had one. Did you? You had no, one. Yeah. No, I think you see spoke also. No, no, I think you yeah. asked me a question. No, I want to ask you one. He's the way Andrew. Oh, sorry, buddy. Yeah, I had to make a choice. You, you, have to make a choice. you used me. <laughs> you did a great job, though, okay? You came out good. What is that you're drinking? Is that like a South American thing? Yeah. You want? It's very yeah. good. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. We got it. Yeah, we'll go. So, yeah, no, exactly. Yes, go. Hi, I'm Andrew from New York. Hello. So you might know my boss. His name is Danny Dion. Amongst your contemporaries, I would classify myself personally in this room as a relatively liberal person, but on the Hebron, on the rights of Jews to live in Judea and Samaria, God bless, I'm with you, and I defend that right every day in New York City and the regions. Uh, which I cover for, for Ambassador Dion. But I have to tell you honestly, and I agree, I agree with you, that when the Arabs come and they make these statements in Al Jazeera, okay, we should, we should slap them back. They should be slapped. They deserve to be spoken to in their language. But unfortunately, as someone who's, who's dealing with this day to day, on these college campuses, um, the language that, that we use here in Israel Okay, on Al Jazeera and to defend ourselves does not connect right now with the American public for a myriad of reasons, particularly liberal Jews. And, and, and I can sit here and tell you, I wish, God, I wish that, that that wasn't the case, but it's the case. I'm dealing with a woman named Linda Sarsour, you've heard of. Okay, I'm dealing with her. And she's, as you said, she's very, very good. And you know what? She's kicking the shit out of us a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. She's kicking the shit out Absolutely. of us. Absolutely. I'm, my, my question is, and I'm, I'm trying to articulate because I know it sounds like a statement, but is, is there any way in which you can adapt this message or to be flexible in the message, not in the belief, but in the delivery, in order to get to these liberals, in order to help diffuse some of these situations because the, the, the constant, I won this debate, I won that debate. Israel's right. You're wrong. Israel good. Arab bad. Okay. Is not helpful. Okay. I want to say something to you. You 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 you're, you're driving away the Jews. Wait. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. One second, hold on. One second. I am the guy who has debated J Street and go out to these debated Shalom Akshav and 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 uh, you know constantly on the on the edge here and I'm never trying to defeat them. I'm trying to make a conversation. Like, I think it's actually the lame answers that have caused Jews to, to move away because when they accuse us of, of occupation, we don't answer the question, okay? I, I deal with liberal groups all the time, and I, I find that they're, like, actually quite much more responsive. They're quite much more responsive. When they see that you're not actually a racist, that you have, make sense in what you're trying to defend, you have to speak it up, but you have to, you have to hit the question head on and not be ashamed about it, okay? It's Israel's, it's our beloved country's, uh, ambivalence about these things that have caused us to seem like liars. If the Prime Minister of Israel says to the world that he believes in a two-state solution, but he doesn't think it can happen now, then you're just like, people are like, well, what do you mean this? What are we going to do? Or when you tell the Europeans that you want a two-state solution, but you, but you know that it's not going to happen now, 
and it's been going on for 40 years with endless paperwork, but nothing actually on the field, then everybody thinks you're a liar, because you kind of are, because you're not telling the truth. Now, there's two modes in Jewish ways of existence. There's Jacob. Jacob, the way he made it in the Bible, is by sneaking around a little bit. But Israel comes from Yisrael, which is Yashar El. You gotta be straight. I offer, when I speak, clarity. No BS. You may not like it at the end. You may not like my suggestions, but you're going to come out thinking, A, he gave me a total package. That, that, and hit, like, it's, a, it's not a kind of you know, tap dance, kind of this, kind of that framework. It's a total framework. And you'll understand that, that it's coming from a reasonable place. That's what I think. More clarity. More assertion of rights. And more um, things that make historical sense, things that make sense altogether, that will heal the situation. Tell the Europeans the truth. They say to you, average Europeans say to me all the time, you can't have a two-state solution and a settlement policy. I'm like, I agree with you, my, you're right. My, I don't want to lie to you. My, my, my issue is that I'm trying, if I try to articulate some of these concepts to an African-American, Hispanic, Asian, other minority audience in the United States right now, particularly on a college campus, these, these, these ideas are not, and it's out of our, it's out of Israel's hands. It's not connect, it's just not connecting with them. And are you sure? Yes. If you sit, wait, yes. wait, wait, no, wait, 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 wait. I, no, because I, no, of course, of course, generally we're, we're on, the, against, on the losing really, side. I'm, I'm not against, right, I'll just be clear, I'm, I'm not at all, I'm for Hebron, I'm I got it. I got okay, it. I got it. Yeah, we're, we're, we got it. Right. How do we talk to liberal Jews? First thing again. Again, is this? Is this? Is this no, what's the lady's name again? Uh, Alexis said, you know, I'm, uh, there's another criticism. I got it. We're finishing up. And how much? One minute? Like yeah. So, to sixty seconds. <laughs> Your question is as much about about my message as it also is about about where they are. Like in a lot of in in some analysis that you could flip it back. Like what's going on with them? They're the ones who are leaving Israel, leaving Judaism. Europe, for example, is post-God, post-family, post-nation, post-nationalism. Uh, we, Israel, are not post-God. We're godly. It doesn't matter if you're religious or not. It's a God country, however you spend it. doesn't matter. That's the way it's perceived. It doesn't matter if it is or it isn't. It's, it's not post-God. It's national, and it's family. And that, for Europeans, for a lot of people in the world, it's a problem. So, you know, you're asking me, how do I, how do I squeeze myself into their shoe? I don't know if I can I'm not sure I can always. Can take one last question. She's been waiting forever. We're not on time. I'm sorry. And there's another question that you guys guys should do. If you, have, if you have one or two more questions right now, Kisha is willing to stay, but like we just need to start getting on the bus. So if, like, basically, I want to let people go so that they can go to the bathroom, et cetera, and get ready to get on the bus. So if you want to stay and ask one more question, that's fine. fine. Let me make one more last sentence, though. Last yeah, sentence. One last sentence is. Uh, if you guys want, always willing to come back and speak some more. I, I, I think you guys are fabulous. Uh, I mean that. I'm not just saying that. I think you guys are really thinking about these things very seriously. I think there are solutions. I think there is hope. There is future. I'm very excited about Israel. I'm excited for the future of Arabs as well. I'm excited for, uh, for what this country is doing. Uh, this is the best country in the region. It's going to be a light into this region. There's going to be a good future. Okay? Let's keep positive. Stay in touch with me, Shai Fleischer. I'm on both Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, SoundCloud, uh, uh, iTunes, YouTube. If you can't find me, then there's something wrong with you, okay? I wanted to thank